Good morning. Have you all here? Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday. Uh, we're going to begin with just a short note of introduction before we jump into the actual topic for the day. We're going to be spending some time in this series looking at the Old Testament as we find it in the New Testament. This won't be a surprise, I don't think, for most of you, though. Sometimes I think we underemphasize it, so it's a it's a good moment to pause and reflect. When the earliest Christians turned to Scripture, they looked in the first part of your Bible. When they thought of what was the holy words, the earliest Christians were looking in what you and I would call the Old Testament. And maybe the way that this takes on flesh, to use incarnational language, is these are Jesus's scriptures. When Jesus thought of the word of God, when he was taught as a child, the verses that should be memorized, as our kids do in Sunday school, Jesus was memorizing the Old Testament. And so it shouldn't be surprising for us, though sometimes it is, how often the Old Testament is indeed quoted in the New Testament. And maybe even to take it a step further, and this is the scandalous part of this class, we're going to look at some of these quotations, and we're going to see how not only in some cases does the New Testament writer have a very interesting interpretation of the Old Testament text. They do interesting things with it. As you're going to see already by the end of today, sometimes different New Testament writers read Old Testament texts differently from each other. And uh first glance, that may or may not be a disturbing idea for you. So I want to just wade into it a little bit together so that we get a chance to, to really process this as we experience this multiple times in the class. When we come to Scripture, the amazing thing about Scripture is the church from its earliest incarnation, what, one of the amazing things that historians tell us is the earliest Christians had pretty much settled on what we call the canon, the, the total group of texts, within the first couple generations of the church. Now, they didn't formally make those you know church proclamations until hundreds of years later, but essentially churches had landed on a very consistent group of books very early. What is interesting is the selection of books that they chose. You have books by John, you have books by Paul, you have books by James, you have books that, you know, depending upon uh, how deeply you go into textual things, there may be uh, pseudonymical uh, writers, things where someone wrote it in the name of someone else. But that, for our purposes, uh, we have the, the disciples writing these things. What's fascinating is, if you look at the text, it is incredible the unity of voice that lives throughout them. But sometimes we get hung on the unity of voice and we miss that the writers do some really interesting, creative, and sometimes surprising things differently from one another. And if you're willing for a moment to open up those texts with some curiosity, if you allow yourself to ask some questions in those places, as we're going to do here today, I think what you're going to find is that God is able to, through mysterious means, make sense of things that may even sound like their intention, there's beautiful notes of truth that lives throughout the New Testament. So um, that may sound philosophical to you. I think by the end of today, hopefully it'll be more practical. So the first text uh, that we're going to begin with, I thought if we're going to start, we might as well start in Genesis. That seemed like a good place to start as it is the beginning. So if you turn Genesis chapter 1, 
Verse 26, this is not going to be a new text for you. It's not going to surprise you. Um, This lives within the first creation narrative that you have in your Bible. And it reads like this. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So entire theological books actually have been written on this section of scripture. Uh, We could talk for hours about what it means to be made in the image of God. What what is the impact of that? How, How are we to understand that? What does it mean here talking about how we're made in the image of God, male and female? All of that has been given Uh, just reams of paper, and that would be an interesting conversation. But that's not why we're here today. We're here because we're going to look at how the early church looked at this pivotal text, and it was defining in their understanding of uh, who it was or what it meant to be made in the image of God. And So our first glance at that is going to come from Jesus himself. Jesus quotes this text in Matthew chapter 14. So if you would, turn into your New Testament. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about Genesis, but we're going to do that through the lens here of what Jesus teaches. So, Matthew chapter 14, verse 3 uh, through 5. Um, no, that's not, that's a lie. That's not the truth. We're, we're, we're going to get to that. Well, that's not it. No, chapter 19, sorry. Chapter 19, 1 through 12. We're going to come back to that, though. So put your finger there. I just spoiled the whole turn. All right, here we go. Uh, Chapter 19, the context of this is, uh, you know in Matthew, Jesus has just vitriolic fights with the Pharisees. Um, And largely, since Matthew is a Jew and he's writing to a Jewish Christian audience, he is very well apprised of the differences between the, the families of the Jewish faith. And Jesus is particularly harsh in his language here. And this is another example of that. Here, the Pharisees come to test Jesus, and Jesus is just going to rhetorically smack them down. And it's not even going to be a question. So here we go, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee, went to the region of Judea, to the other side of Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. So this needs to be very clear. Matthew is telling you this is a test. So this is our reader is cluing you into that this is going to be a a clash of the wits. It's going to be a clash of the rhetoric. And we're supposed to know that going into it. Uh, They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Any and every reason. Hold on to that. That's going to be important. Haven't you read, Jesus replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them what? Male and female. Clearly quoting from Genesis chapter 1. Interesting. And then he said, for this reason... A man will leave his father and mother, will be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Just for kicks and giggles, I get the greatest joy out of the fact that this gets quoted at weddings all the time. Because if couples actually knew that this 
thing that we make into this happy-go-lucky, you know, united together kind of stuff, we all like that, is coming from like a flesh and blood fight between Jesus and the Pharisees. I think those <laughs> things just make me smile. Um, so uh, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? I want to I make sure we're all watching what's happening here. They come to Jesus with this very specific question about divorce, which we are going to begin asking some questions about here in a moment. Why divorce? What, why is that the question that they're bringing to Jesus? And we'll, we'll jump into that. But then Jesus replies with a quote from Genesis chapter 1, and he appeals to this idea that God makes them male and female. What the Pharisees do in response here is fascinating. They return to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, you can quote Genesis. That's nice. What about Exodus? What about Moses, Jesus? Didn't Moses give us an alternate teaching? This is a very clear rhetorical style of argument between uh, within the Jewish religious faith. This is the back and forth that happens all of the time. And sometimes Christians are very uncomfortable with the idea of, well, you have a text, I have a text too. Let's, let's go back and forth with each other. And, let, and they say different things, so let's fight with each other about it. That's not controversial in the Jewish context. That's the way that they debate biblically. So here, they follow the form. So did Moses give a command that the man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Whoa! Let's go, Jesus. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Okay, and then the disciples go on. We're, we're going to pause here. Um, the, the disciples are confused by this. Um, Jesus begins talking about eunuchs, which we don't have time to unpack that because we're Westerners. But the, the point here is the debate is happening about divorce. And we're going to get to why Jesus, what Jesus is doing with Genesis here. But before we get there, I want to ask with you, why divorce? And if you think back a little bit, and, and none of us are Matthew scholars, so none of us are going to be, uh, you know, uh, put in jail here for not thinking this. But turn with me back to that Matthew 14. Matthew chapter 14, verse 3 through 5 here. This is, we're looking at, what, uh, Five chapters difference between these two. So five chapters before, Matthew tells us this. Speaking of John the Baptist, um, we'll start one. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him, put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother's Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. Very, very interesting textually, the is it lawful question the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful to divorce a wife, is the exact same Greek as the it is not lawful to have your wife in Matthew 14. So walk through this with me for just a second. The Pharisees in the, Matthew, in the Matthew text, we've already been told that John the Baptist is killed because Herod wants to do whatever he wants with his wives. And now the Pharisees come asking Jesus to catch him in a trap, to test him, 
asking the same thing that made Herod mad to Jesus. And now Jesus is put on the spot to answer about marriage and divorce. That is intentional. That kind of thing doesn't just pop up accidentally. And what I think is so interesting is it's in the the moment here of the Pharisees trying to catch Jesus in Herod's wicked relational life that Jesus finds another way beyond it in his argument. And the, what, what I think is instrumental is this text, particularly here of uh, the, the Matthew 19 text, has for a long time caused lots and lots of trouble in the church's interpretation. What are we to make here of divorce? What are we to, should, should that be a deal breaker? I'm sure you're aware there are churches today in which that a person would not be admitted to membership if they were divorced. That is less common today. In the Middle Ages, that was a hard and fast rule. As long as the Catholic Church was the predominant church, that was indeed the church's reading of the text. What's fascinating, though, is we got there reading Jesus's comments largely disconnected from what Jesus was critiquing about Herod. The ultimate point that Jesus is refuting is that at the end of the day, there is one man and one woman, and that's all you get. You don't get to just keep adding wives if if you want to. You don't get to keep subverting that. And one biblical scholar I read this week in preparation for this made the very interesting point. He said that while this does very much, Jesus' comment very much does sort of assume that basic uh, sort of pharisaical Jewish marriage structure where where you have, and we're going to talk about this in Genesis, where the man represents God's leadership and then the wife represents the the way of, of serving within that ordered relationship. What's fascinating is Jesus's comment essentially restricts Herod's leadership. So in other words, in Jesus's day, it would have been the male right to do what he wants. Right? If, if Herod the Antipas wants to do something, it, it's his right and responsibility to do it. Interestingly, Jesus, by turning to Genesis chapter one, finds a way of subverting that and saying, no, both the male and the female are subject to God, not to the ordering of one another, which is a fascinating turn. Okay. We've gone through a lot. I want to quick connect it to Genesis and I want to engage with any questions on this before, before I keep rushing uh, you in into this. But what is fascinating here is when you read Genesis, it's all ordered, right? It's ordered by day. It's ordered by animal. It, it's ordered by uh, darkness and by light. It is very careful uh, telling of the story of the beginning. And it, it serves to show that when God shows up, nothing is defined by chaos. Everything is done in order and for a purpose because God is creator, right? God is not some uh, cosmic gambling uh, slot machine. Uh, God, God has a purpose. And when God chooses and says a thing, what happens will be done according to God's purpose. The traditional Jewish reading of Genesis is that that order exists in every form of life. And this is codified in the law. If you're going to follow God's way, you follow the law because that is the way that God ordered the universe, right? And so the idea of God created them in his image, male and female, 
that is a representation of God's ordering of the universe, that there are ways in which the creation is complementary to itself. You have prey and predator. You have male and female. You have light and darkness. That, that these opposites are also necessary for the balancing of each other. You with me? So, Jesus sees in Genesis chapter 126 a rather uh, traditional in some ways and yet revolutionary in other ways of reading that to say, if God made male and female, if God ordered our human relationships in that way, then therefore it is unfitting for Herod to get to choose what he wants to do with those relationships. That if God put you together, that Herod is subject to God. And that that ordering matters. And so therefore, the Pharisees who want to say, hey, Moses said we could divorce if that's what we want to do. Jesus says, yeah, you want to claim Moses the giver of the law, but Jesus turns to the giver of life, which is God, in Genesis chapter 1, says, this preempts your Moses decree, because the way that God wanted it was for all relationships to be subject to God, not subject to human. You with me? Questions, comments, thoughts? Have I troubled you already? They would also known the story of David and Bathsheba and the consequences of David's right. actions, which right. were brutally difficult. Right. Well, and you got to remember that... <clears throat> The law itself, if you read it, uh, is, uh, and we went through some of this in Exodus, though there's more in the other uh, Pentateuch, but the law is very, one of its consistent notes is it is very interested in the protection of the widow. Because societally, without that, the woman has no protection, right? And if you remember that rule about if uh, if a woman di- or if a husband dies and leaves his wife without a child, it's the brother's responsibility to marry her, and that goes down and down and down and down. In fact, Jesus had arguments about this as well. Who's going to be her husband in heaven? Right, that kind of stuff. Well, the the reason for that is actually a wholehearted desire to protect the woman's interest, because in that structuring of society without her having an heir she she has no financial recourse she can't own property she can't own business uh, ultimately she's subject to a, a, a lack of representation in society and so the law orders it in such a way that her interests are protected i think that goes also to your point there, there's a way in which they do know of those stories david bathsheba that that's a example of infidelity but they also know the examples when it's not your fault, when, when it goes wrong, when life goes wrong and, and sin breaks the ordering that God intended, that they knew that we needed to have some redemptive process to fix that problem. And so you could read the Old Testament as, as having laid that out. But here, Jesus, I think Jesus looks at that as a way to trump this reliance upon Matthew and divorce and the male can do what they want. Why can't Herod just do what he wants? But that's not a good faith argument. The Pharisees don't think that Herod should be able to do it. But they think they have Jesus in a gotcha. They think that, hey, Jesus, can't Herod do whatever he wants? And if Jesus says yes to that, everybody hates Herod, everyone will hate Jesus, right? So to be clear, they're not trying to make a real argument, but Jesus trumps them returning to Genesis as opposed to moving to Exodus. Other thoughts? 
All right, because it's going to get a lot more interesting. All right, Galatians chapter 3. Let's go. I'm excited. Uh, Galatians chapter 3, thoroughly a Pauline letter. Um, some, anyone here, would anyone here call Galatians your favorite Pauline letter? No? So, some, some would claim this as their favorite. Uh, we're looking at chapter 3, verse 26. I'm actually going to revise that. Let's start here, verse 23, just for context. Before the becoming, becoming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed, so that the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. doesn't get more Pauline than that. Um, now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, which is the law. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor, there, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, this is fascinating. Unfortunately, in our present moment where gender identity is just like headlining in our society, and so therefore the, the church is reading texts with that question on our horizon, if you can for a moment put our, our last 30, 50, 60 year conversation, put that on the shelf for just a moment, you try to read this with a little bit more of a blank slate mind, you do not get through this text Slave, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, and not just have alarm bells going off on your dashboard thinking, I've heard that before somewhere. Where have I heard that? Right? Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Paul is an expert reader of the Bible. He, this is, that's not an accident that he gives an exact quote from Genesis, and he's doing so in this very interesting interpretive moment. The reason why I wanted to start here in this class was, what is beautiful is Paul is pushing us to read Genesis in light of Jesus, which is very, very challenging if we really take a moment to reflect on that. Because if you just read this text literally, if you just read it for what it says, doesn't it look like Paul just said the opposite of Genesis chapter 1? Right? Genesis chapter 1 says God made them male and female. That's what it says. Paul said in Christ there is no male or female. That, that on its surface is contradictory, right? And this is what I think makes reading the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament so interesting is because we begin to discover, and we'll see this over and over again, that these Christians were doing the same work that we are doing today, which is showing up to the text and trying to humble ourselves enough to hear something in it and bravely trusting that God will say something. And we've done that time and time again. And I would point to you uh, things like, you know that the Presbyterian Church, not to our credit, 150 years ago, split over the issue of slavery. 
Half of the church said, we believe the Bible teaches slavery. And so therefore, we cannot be with you who believe that the Bible doesn't. That's a, that's a troubling past. Both turned to scripture to make their point. Now, I would argue 150 years later, we've all come to the same page, hopefully, to say that was a poor reading of the text, right? But in that moment, both sides were grappling with scripture and what does it mean in our context? Here, we see Paul making this a really interesting argument about the law and Jesus Christ. And if you read Paul, you know this idea of being in Christ is not an accident. That specific language is used consistently throughout every one of Paul's letters. When he talks about being in Christ, that's not just a, an idea of like, I'm uh, in, like I'm a fan of the Packers. Like you're, you're somehow in the circle of people who like them. When he says in Christ, he means an ontological, which that word, he means you're actually in your substance in Jesus. That the spiritual reality of Jesus is true in you. He, he means that actually. So when he says in Christ, he, is, he knows that you're not physically in Christ. But you remember Jesus and his argument with Nicodemus, how can I be born again? Nicodemus reads that as how can I actually get back into my mother's stomach and be born again? Jesus, you're, you're a fool, right? And Jesus says, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. Paul, when he reads that, he sees in it a literal reality that we are spiritually in Christ. Okay? So if that's true, if you're spiritually in Christ, Paul makes the case that because now you are in the spiritual reality of the Savior of the world, because you are in the life of the triune God, therefore all human constructs, even those made at creation, have been transformed. Not done away with. He doesn't say that there will no longer be male or female, right? He's, he's not making the case that there isn't Gentile and there isn't Jew. Those still exist. Paul's not a fool, right? He's saying that those no longer have a count inside the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. That inside God's new reality, all of that previous ordering does not have the same power of categorization. Because the only thing that matters is Jesus. Everything else is secondary to it. You with me? Now, that's a challenging statement. And if you're taking me up seriously, it, it may even cause concern. Because some of us are going to be very uncomfortable. And I think rightly so. We should have a conversation. Should we read Paul as potentially reinterpreting what he read in Genesis? If you feel uncomfortable with that, that's not something to be ashamed of. That, that You may look at me and say, I don't think that's a good way to read the Bible. And, and we should have a conversation about that. What I find interesting, though, if you allow yourself to read the Bible in this way for just a little bit, and this is, I'm not asking you get to the end of this class and you agree that you think that this is a great way to read the Old Testament in the New. What I'm hoping is we get to the end of this experience and you say, huh, it's interesting that scripture may be big enough that you can see in the tensions in it, God actually saying one thing, right? In other words, the fact that Paul here may be looking to Genesis to say that in Jesus, everything has changed, 
that may in no way make these two opposed to one another. We just might learn more because of both of them. That's, that's going to be my overall thesis in our time together. Uh, whether I make the case or not, I'll leave to you. Maybe, maybe we'll have a vote at the end. Did Michael succeed? And that would be great. Um, but, but here we are. We have Jesus reading Matthew 14. Sorry, Jesus reading Matthew 19. Uh, th- this Genesis text, male or female. You have Paul reading it, uh, Galatians chapter 3. And in both cases, you have them understanding it slightly differently for the case and the context in which they're writing. So, I'd love to engage in conversation about that, either trouble spots for you, or I'd love, or, or places that you want to add. I'm also happy if, if that doesn't immediately avail itself, we can also zoom in a little bit more on Genesis chapter one and talk a little bit about some of that. So I, I want to go where your interest lies in here. Yep. But this last sentence here just kind of got my attention. In, are we looking in Galatians? Yeah. Yep. It starts with if. Yep. Okay. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. So he's going back then and heirs according to the promise. Kind of hooks you. Tell me more about that, Marcia. How, how does it hook you? How does well, it hook if, us? If you're going. You know, if you're an heir and you're looking back at the Old Testament and Abraham, right? Which surely they always did. Mm-hmm. Um, according to the promise, right? That's out there hanging too. Right. It. So the thing with Paul is. Everything that is true is conditional. Everything that is ultimately true hangs on an if. And I have one particular if statement in mind. Does anyone else thinking it? That if Jesus Christ was not risen from the dead, then we above all men are to be counted fools. For Paul, that if statement defines everything else. And Paul is supremely convinced that the answer to that if is, yes, Jesus Christ was resurrected. Jesus Christ is the gospel. And if that's true, then Jesus Christ is the ultimate heir of Abraham. And if you read the Genesis narrative, God's promise to Abraham, it is thoroughly understandable how the Jews got to the point where they believed that that was genetic and hereditary. That's the way that the text tells the story. But when Paul reads the if of Jesus, and he looks and says that that if has redefined everything else, then he sees the breakdown of these categories. What we thought was the genetic lineage of Abraham is now seen as the spiritual lineage of Jesus Christ. And that is amazingly troubling for Paul. And and he doesn't really address it like he does in Romans. In Romans, I would encourage you, read that middle section that nobody likes, like 11 to 13 range in there. Nobody likes it because Paul's making this whole argument about what to do with the Jews. Uh, What do we make of the Jews and their inheritance of the promise and the fact that all these Gentiles are getting it and the Jews are not? He ultimately makes the case that his point is God 
gave the promise to the Jews. Jesus was the fulfillment of that promise that the Jews have rejected. Then the Gentiles heard the promise and they've taken it to heart. And Paul's argument is he believes that God's plan is to take that awareness, that jealousy that the Jews have, and that God will then turn them to repentance because they see God now working in the Gentiles. So his point in the end is that God's plan is to save Jew and Gentile both by saving one over the other. By saving one, the other gets compelled by jealousy to come to God as well. So once again, it all hinges on this idea of Jesus. It all hinges on what happens in Jesus. And that, I think, is the the background subtext of what's happening here. When he's talking about male or female, there is no male or female, slave nor free. You know that slavery is an economic thing in Jesus' day. So you, you have to detach some of our American history. That So what, he said, what he's saying is the social orders that on their surface seem defining in Jesus Christ are all redefined. But he's not suggesting, he's not suggesting that the social order in society is dissolved. And if you want to make the case for that, you need to go read Philemon and Titus, uh, which are essentially Paul making arguments within the social structure that he lived. Um, So he saw Jesus as spiritually redefining for the Christian, but he didn't live in a world in which he believed that they could elect a different person and that the law could change, right? I mean, that's a different modern concept that we have. But ultimately, Caesar, Caesar. And so Paul works within the the boundary of that. But he believes that in Jesus, it's all changed. Is verse 28, I'm kind of building off of Marshall here. So Paul is saying that when you accept Christ um, as your, your Lord and Savior, you are like the chosen of Abraham. Is that kind of the, the jump being made there? Is that accurate? Right. I would argue, though, towards this point today, yep. yes, Abraham. But Abraham is only the inheritor of the original promise. Right. right. I think what Paul is doing is Paul is circum—because Abraham—I want to say this very clearly. Abraham means something different because of Jesus. Right? Abraham did mean the covenant for the Jews, but now Abraham means the covenant for all people. So it goes behind Abraham. It goes above Abraham to the actual moment of creation, and it transforms the original ordering, which was God made everyone male and female. That actually all of it has changed. Does that make sense? Yeah. So then in verse 28, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Is is Paul hinting at a hierarchy like is dissolved through Christ. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's yeah. neither slave nor free. There's neither man nor woman. Like at the at the foot of the cross, we're all on low right. ground. Except not. Okay. That's yeah, explain. That's what I Except not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because Paul makes very, very compelling arguments in Corinthians that they should listen to him because he's been made the their leader, not because he wants to, but because that's God's intention. I I, I don't think, I, 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 this is my opinion. This is firmly Michael Guecki. Take this with a massive grain of salt and go home and add more salt to it. But I, in my opinion, I, I don't think Paul is a hippie. I don't think Paul believes in cheap 
human love. I, I don't think that whole let's all just get along kind of. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's Paul. I, I, Paul dealt with too many real human things in real human ways. It right. Casting a guy out in Corinthian in Corinth and saying it's better for him to not be in your community for the hope that maybe he figures it out. That that's not a let's just all figure it out together kind of mentality, right? So I think if you read Paul holistically, I don't think Paul believes that hierarchy is gone. I think what he believes is that hierarchy has been completely transformed. That ultimately the only hierarchy that matters in the end is Jesus. That if Jesus is at the top, then everything else falls away. And this is the case I'm going to make, that practically this is what makes Paul, I think, so challenging when we read him today, is because Paul does, I think, to us seem very shifty. Like, he says on one hand, women shouldn't speak in church and they should keep their heads covered in the gathering, right? He also writes in his letters that he worked alongside women leaders in churches. That's shifty. What do you do with that? And I think what you have to read is to Paul, there's neither male nor female. There's neither uh, slave nor free. For Paul, those are categories now that there's a little bit of wiggle room as long as it's under Jesus. Uh, Paul recognizes that he's got to have a little bit of humility in those spheres because Jesus is the ultimate judge, not Abraham anymore. And that's revolutionary to a Jew. I mean, for a Jew to come to a point to say that Abraham's covenant has been fulfilled in Jesus is like having everything you learned about in Sunday school being turned on its head, right? So, I mean, that's a that's a massive, massive deal. But Paul's also the guy that said you should pay your taxes. He, he said that you should live peaceably among all men as far as it pertains to you. And that was written in a city where Christians were being sought out to be killed for their faith. I, I mean, that there is, there is a kind of open flexibility where Genesis was read originally. And by the way, it was also read this way in the Middle Ages. Someone like Aquinas, uh, I'm not recommending you pick up Aquinas and read him because unless you want to go to sleep, that's a good bedtime reading. <laughs> um, that guy, he's a master of argument. Uh, so you'd have to like that. Um, but he turns to Genesis on this thing that is called natural law. And he made this very compelling case in the Middle Ages to say that if you read Genesis, what it means is that essentially God laid out creation so that if you were smart enough, you could look at creation and see the salvation plan all the way right here. Now, the reformers went ham on Aquinas. So you don't hear that a lot in a Presbyterian church because uh, the reformers were trying to really get that uh, worked out. But at the end of the day, the point I'm trying to make is it historically Genesis 1 has been read to say that God ordered things the way they are, that that was intentional and it's unviolable. That that is it. That if, the, if, if God ordered it that way, it has to be that way. I mean, think of uh, Noah, right? Two by two. Right, the the ordering of the way that things are, that is the way that it's intended to be. There, it's light and dark. There's land and sea. There's atmosphere and there's ground. Everything is held in order, right? But when Paul looks at the social order, he says Jesus is above what we thought the ordering was. 
That's an astonishing statement. But how else could he say it? Because everyone thought Jew and Gentile was part of the ordering. Everybody thought that was the same as light and dark until it wasn't. When Jesus became, remember what happened when he died on the cross? Darkness descended. Jesus is the nexus of light and dark. Jesus is the nexus of all of those tensions. He's the center. The cross is the center of the universe. And if that's true, then suddenly we read Genesis in a new way. Or that's the case I'm making to you, whether it's compelling or not. All right. Last question. We got time for one more. Yes, sir. I thought you made a comment about the Reformation. Yes, sir. In a negative sense. No, no, no. I didn't mean it in the negative sense. I, the Reformation critiqued Aquinas. They were, they were pushing back against Aquinas. Okay. That's why I was saying that we often don't hear natural theology arguments in a Presbyterian church. Thank you. Yeah. No, they would be doing the critiquing of him. <laughs> yeah. I, someone else was saying something. Was that? The, the subject of slavery I find interesting and the fact that the church split over it. Sometimes it's, it's a matter of convenience how the Bible is interpreted. Just the fact that slavery is mentioned in the Bible does not mean that it was acceptable. It wouldn't have been acceptable to God because all men were created equal. Right. They wouldn't have condoned it. He wouldn't have condoned it. But there's often times in the Bible where it's, it's a matter of interpretation. Right. This is the thing that I think the Reformed tradition has to offer towards that end, is we have long insisted that human sinfulness is a very bad frame for reading the Bible. We said, you don't get to read the Bible without sinfulness showing up. So therefore, if that is true, if, if sin is a basic human frame, then it is impossible to read the Bible without community and humility. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I grew up in the tradition, by the way, that uh, doesn't emphasize either of those. <laughs> the Pentecostal uh, sort of tradition is very individualist. It's very, very heavy on reading the Bible. But the dangers that happen there, if it's just you read your Bible and you read it a lot, what ends up happening is you see the same thing in it over and over and over again. And you begin thinking that your interpretation is the only one. And then someone else comes and says, well, what, you know, what about this? And then you say, well, get away from me, heretic, because you don't sound like me. Who's, who's Lord now in your reading? Is it Jesus or is it you? I think that's the real temptation. So to your point, there were Christians. Let's not make it American because I think that's particularly troubling for us. I, I, this, this hangs on for me. There were German pastors who gave theological voice to the mass incarceration and murder of entire peoples. That they were that German seminaries, to be clear, were considered the best seminaries in the Christian world. If that does not make your hair stand up, I don't know what will. And I, I mean, to be charitable, they really thought of themselves as, when they read the text, they preached from pulpits that. So I, my point is merely this. 
is that if you don't read the Bible in community, and if you don't read it with humility, you are reading the Bible dangerously. If someone, if you can't be convinced that something in the Bible may need to be reinterpreted for you, I'm not talking about the essentials. I'm not talking about Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm, right? Like, I, I want to be very clear, right? Not everything is relative, but there are a lot of things the church has said, divorce is this. And then 300 years later, we go back to the text and we get beat up pretty hard because of our lack of humility.